All right. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up to uh, Luke chapter four. Uh, Luke chapter four. Last week we uh, we we dove back into our journey through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we found ourselves in this scene where uh, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and and he proclaims to the Jewish people really some incredible truths about about who he is, and, and it's a very dramatic moment. Uh, he, he comes in the room, uh, and he steps up to, to the pulpit. I guess that's what they called it then. Uh, but he steps up to the pulpit, and someone hands him, uh, an attendant hands him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And as he unrolls it, he gets to this section uh, that, that we consider uh, chapter 61. And, and he proclaims these incredible truths. He steps up and he says this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me uh, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Uh, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then then after he uh, proclaims these words, he sits down uh, and, and with all eyes on him, uh, in the silence, the awkward silence of the room, he says, today, this prophecy has been fulfilled. That, that in this moment in history, these words are fulfilled. And now what we said uh, was, was important for us to know is that uh, those words cannot mean for us something that it didn't mean for them. Uh, and so, so as we try to talk about how to apply these words, what, what we're wrestling with was how this passage is meant to help us understand uh, really who Jesus is and what his purposes are uh, when it comes to his life and his death and his resurrection and, and his ascension. And, and then, if you remember, at the end of this statement, uh, all the people are just amazed with who he is. And I love those scenes, right? Uh, I love these scenes when we get into the Bible and people are seeing Jesus just, uh, and they're just, they're marveled by him. They're just amazed uh, by who he is. And, and then uh, Jesus reveals something to them about the intentions of their hearts. And, and Jesus reveals some truths about the gospel being opened up to the Gentiles. And it's this that really what you have in their culture, you have Jews and you have Gentiles. It's God's chosen people and then all the others. Uh, I don't know if you have uh, that kind of mentality in your house. Uh, my, when we were growing up and really um, my whole life, it, my dad had always said, you know, there's two, kind, two times of people in this world. There's Geary's and those who wish they were. Um, I know, you just wish, right? Um, but, but, but basically in the Jewish culture, that's what you had. You had the Jews and then you had the people who just wished they were the Jews. Uh, and they would look at these people and they would know or feel that you are unworthy of the love of God. And, and then Jesus all of a sudden speaks and he says, the gospel is going to be open to them. And, uh, and these people who are exposed, who just a moment ago are marveling at Jesus, quickly turn on him. Uh, and in their disgust and in their frustration, uh, they run them out of town and they try to throw them off of a cliff, right? Uh, and, and, then, and then Luke, just as like this a matter-of-fact moment, says, uh, Jesus disappeared uh, from them in the midst. And, 
And so, so where he goes today, and really where he spends the majority of his time between now and, and chapter 9, is in this region uh, called Capernaum. And, uh, and now he's become very well known in this area, and he's been serving people in, in powerful ways. And, uh, and as we pick back up in verse 31, uh, I want us to mention first uh, really the dangers of, of limiting Jesus to really any singular activity of his earthly ministry. Um, so so let's, let's take this passage today, for instance. Uh, we're going to see Jesus teaching, and people are going to be amazed. Uh, we're going to see him exercise demons, and those demons will cower in his presence. Uh, we're going to see him heal many who are sick with various diseases, and, and their lives are going to be forever changed. And, and all of these movements presented are never intended to make Jesus into someone lesser than who he is. And in fact, what, what I mean by that is that, is that Jesus is not just the sum of, of any of these singular activities. He's, he's not just a teacher, and he's not just an exorcist, or he's not just a healer. What Luke is revealing to us are these things about him to give us a more complete picture of who he is as our messiah this is just as he's proclaimed at the beginning of of chapter four and so he is the one who is sent to rescue and to redeem us and so so when we get to places like this where we what we are really being allowed to see is just the authority that jesus has over all things um, we're going to see the authority that he has over Satan, and we're going to see the authority he has over creation. And, and, and since he is God's only son, paving the way for our forgiveness from our sin. And so, so to limit him with any of these labels would be kind of like pulling a card out of a deck. And, and, and what that does is it kind of limits the way God displays him in all of Scripture. Now, now I mention this because... There's a very real danger in our time to think of Jesus in limiting ways. Uh, in fact, uh, the main limiting way that we want to treat Jesus is only as Savior, but not Lord. Okay, We like the idea of him rescuing us and, and uh, him being the avenue through which we find the forgiveness of our sins. But we typically, at, at times, other people, not you I'm sure... Uh, refrain from saying, okay, you're the Lord of my life. And so, so the heartbeat of my life and, and the breath of my lungs proclaims something about your goodness and about how you are my great treasure and you are my, my source through all joy and peace and celebration. And so it's really easy in our time to think of Jesus in limiting ways. And I think we're, we're more like this audience that we read about in the first century than, than we would care to admit because we can attempt to go to jesus in many different ways that are limiting to the vast riches he makes available to us as as our lord and and our savior and so so jesus is is more than just the labels we would be tempted to give him as we read these words he's he's the sum of all of our needs that's that's who he is the gift of of the word and specifically the gospels is an account for how he displays these credentials as the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world and so 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 let's do this and what i'm going to try my very best now there's no guarantees on this 
but I'm going to try my very best not to give us two lessons in one time today. Um, but, but what I want to do, because I think if we came back to this passage in about six months, something, something different would kind of come to light. Uh, and that's simply because uh, the, the Word of God is living and it's active. Uh, and so uh, what, what I want to do is I want us to walk together through these scenes, and then I want us to kind of come back and, and allow me to unpack uh, the conversations and then really the reactions that the demons have um, when Jesus speaks to them. Uh, and, and I'm sure you woke up this morning like, man, I hope we have a lot of demon talk today. Um, but that's what you get, all right? You can't leave now. We'll all know that you're chicken. Um, but, but these interactions are, are the ones that kind of have been on my mind most uh, over the last couple weeks because I, I find them to be pretty interesting. Uh, and so... So what we're going to do, we're going to work through this in, in three different sections, and I've very cleverly given you um, just the outline of, of what is going on here. And so the first thing, as we talk about the authority that Jesus wields uh, in these verses, is, is verses 31 and 32, we see uh, Jesus exercise his authority in his teaching. Okay, it says this, And he went down, Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, uh, and I'm sorry, so he's in this region of Galilee, and he went to Capernaum, uh, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, or his word, possessed authority. Okay, now that's, that's as important to them as it is to us, because the Gospel of, of Matthew chapter 7 tells us this, a similar thing, that Jesus' teaching was not like the scribes, and it was not like the Pharisees, who, who basically taught a lot of speculation uh, that led to a lot of doubt. And, and Jesus is teaching, as he opens his mouth, he speaks with exclamation points. Uh, and, and he speaks with power, and he taught as if he had the ability to, and the right to define and to proclaim the very words of God. And, and spoiler alert, he did, Right? And, and so, so there's, there's certainty and there's confidence in his message. And, and our Lord taught the Old Testament as if it was his autobiography. And if, if we were to believe the words of, the opening words of the Gospel of John to be true, it's because they are. In fact, John opens his Gospel with these words. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and then he says this about Jesus. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And those are great news for us today. Because when Jesus speaks, we know that his light cannot be overcome by any darkness. And I heard a pastor uh, many years ago, explained much of Jesus' teaching. And it really was, his, his intention was to explain who God is to a people who had made God out to be someone that he was not. Uh, in fact, uh, the religion had overcome the relationship. So, so this little God was created in man's image who was controlling uh, through guilt and fear fear and wrath. And, and when we pay attention to, to Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, what we find is, is a Heavenly Father who is, who is serious about sin, and He's serious about holiness, while at the same time willing to lavish love on sinners like us. 
And so, so, so that's why John will describe Jesus coming in both grace and truth. And so, so as Jesus teaches uh, with such authority, he teaches it because he teaches with the full counsel of God's heart for the people. And I love it. I love these moments because the hardest words that Jesus speaks are, are with the church people. Like, like the, as many times as he calls people on the rug, to the rug, he calls it to the church people. And he's explaining the heart of the Father. Because he's saying, you've created an image of a God that is not accurate. And so he comes and he teaches with this authority. And he teaches the, the counsel of God's heart for people and the truth about the, the damning effects of sin while also teaching the truth about what God is doing, what God has done uh, to provide us a rescuer and a redeemer in Jesus. And so, so as Jesus is teaching, the people are amazed, and, and then a major disruption uh, takes place in this church service. And Jesus is going to exercise authority over demons. Verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! Which I think is great, right? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, okay? And if you like to make marks in your Bible, this will make you look spiritual, right? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and with power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And so, so the New Testament has much to say about uh, Jesus' work with respect to demons. And I think it's, it's easy, it's so easy in our time to be desensitized or, or simply ignore demonic powers that are at play in these days. Uh, it's so easy. In, in fact, uh, we, we watch a scary movie and we tell scary stories and we forget this great plea that Paul gives us in Ephesians 6. When he says, he says, finally, uh, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And so Paul gives us this plea, and we live in a time where we're very desensitized to, the, to that activity. In fact, our society and our enemy would have you believe that these scenes that we find in Luke 4 are simply myth. Or, or they're just legends so that you would ignore the fight and you would ignore the presence of demonic activity today. And it's very real. It's very real and it's not to be trifled with in our own strength. As we're going to see, just the voice of Jesus changes everything. Just the name of Jesus changes everything. And so, so let's sit in Luke 4 for just a moment 
because demonic exorcism is almost uh, almost totally unheard of in Old Testament times. Uh, and, and rarely is it mentioned in the New Testament outside of, of the Gospels. But, but while Jesus was on earth and as he was exercising his public ministry, there's this, this highly concentrated and intense time of confrontation with the powers of Satan. In fact, it seems as though all the forces of hell appeared in this attempt to undermine the ministry of Christ and, and now did so unsuccessfully. Uh, but, but, but don't pass over verse 33 too, too quickly. Because there's this sad irony here. Um, because, because basically you, you run into the devil in the most surprising places, right? Because you don't, you don't expect to find a demon-possessed people, I should say, in a synagogue or a church. Now, now Hollywood would have us thinking uh, that, that all demons are in graveyards or in dark forests or in basements. Or um, where there was a movie a long time ago where this kid dug a hole, right? And it turns out it was the hole to the portal of hell. Um, it was a really bad, like, B movie that I watched as a kid. And nobody else did, so maybe I made it up. I don't know. Um, but Hollywood would have you thinking of of these places, and, and what happened was Satan takes over a man and then took him to church. That's what he does. And so, so and we, we don't have to go further, really, <laughs> than the assembly of God's people to find evidence that, that the enemy does not like what happens when the church gathers. That he fights against it. And sadly, too often, he fights against it with whispers in the ears of believers. And then there's division. And when there's division, there's, there's not the ability to walk together and to work together and to glorify God together because we begin competing. And, and Satan loves, loves to oppose Christ's work right where the Lord is meant to be worshipped. And so, so we... We'll talk about this conversation that Jesus has with the demons in a moment. But, but when Jesus rebukes the demon, the demon comes out and the people are astonished. Verse 36, they were all amazed. And when you, when you think about what a demon is, this really is amazing. That a demon is a fallen angel who rebels with Satan against God, was cast from heaven, and they are committed to opposing God's rule and everything that God does. Everything, and they hate God, they hate God's people, and the entire mission is to resist God. And then to cause other people to resist God. But when Jesus speaks, demons tremble. He does. And so, so, and so, so what happens is, is we live in this society where there's this belief called dualism, right? Uh, and we, we always think it because it's, it makes for a good movie, right? That, that there's good, and there's evil, and then there's this battle. And we think that given the moment, given the day, one is going to win over the other. But, but as Christians, as we put our faith in Jesus, what we get to do is we get to say, hey, I don't, I don't have to have, I don't get to have a worldview that's dualism. Because in every single battle, Jesus wins. He rules over every single demonic power. And you say, well, then, then why doesn't he just do it? It is because the long suffering of God that he gives us time to repent and to turn our hearts towards him and to bless his people. But mark my words, God has said that there will be a day it all comes to an end. And when it comes to an end, it'll be 
an epic, epic telling. So he rules, Jesus rules over these demonic powers. He just says, be silent and come out of them. And you know what happened? He became silent and he came out of them. Then verse eight, verse 38 begins revealing Jesus' authority over physical ailments. So he arose, Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a, with a high fever. Now that's intended to help us understand, like, like she's not just like, oh, I got a fever today, I can't go to work. Like, like a high fever is a serious issue uh, for them. For Luke to describe it as a high fever uh, says, hey, this, this, this is no joke. Okay? And so, so, and they appealed to Jesus on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Okay? Now, like, when I am sick, I need, like, three days just to recoup, right? Like, hey, I was sick two weeks ago, guys. Easy, right? And so Jesus is requested to help her, and, and so he rebukes this fever, and perhaps they expected him to, to put hands on her and, and just pray that she would be healed, but instead what Jesus does is he speaks to the fever, almost as if this fever was capable of curing, and, and he rebuked it, and the fever departed, and the woman was instantly, instantly restored to the fullness of her health. And then after that, things got really busy. Verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all those who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And guys, this is, this is no fluke, and this is not a fraud. That, that Jesus is, is not healing these vague, unverifiable kinds of sickness. He's not a, a traveling tent revival featuring a fake healer planting people in the audience to stir up emotions. That, that in fact, he, he, didn't, he doesn't turn anyone away. It says that the Lord healed each one. No one got turned away. He didn't sell tickets. He didn't ask for an offering. He sat there well into sunset, and he personally laid hands on every person who came to him. Okay? Now, that's good news for you and me. Because he's willing to personally lay hands on us. That he doesn't just wear it. He doesn't just leave us there. And the beauty is that they were healed. So, so when Jesus heals, this is not fakery. Satan always has counterfeits, but Jesus is, is the real deal, since he is the Son of God. So verse 42, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him, and they came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Again, you can't slot Jesus into any one of these singular activities because what the people want is him to stay there and just keep healing. Just keep healing, just keep healing, just keep healing. He's like, he's like, no, if I stayed here and I did this, I wouldn't be doing what I've been sent to do. And the problem with that is that everybody needs me. 
In fact, R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, the great late R.C. Sproul, gives some insight on, on why Jesus was departing. And he goes to a desolate place, which is just, he just withdraws to a place. He says that Jesus, in his humanity, as we are told on other occasions, when he healed somebody, would feel power go out of him. He would be spiritually, emotionally, and physically drained by the giving of himself in this ministry of compassion. There were times when he simply had to flee from the multitude to get some rest, to get alone with God, to get away from the clamoring multitudes. Have you ever needed to be in this place? So when he gave them his attention, he gave it undividedly as we read in verse 40. But it was a costly thing for Jesus. His strength was dissipated. His power was drained from his body. And he would then from time to time go into a quiet place to be refreshed, to be filled. Sproul continues, he says, Privacy is one of man's most precious possessions. But the irony is is that we rarely understand the value of our privacy until we lose it. And Jesus, however, had to get alone. But the people came to him and they pressed upon him and they said, don't go, don't go, don't go. And they wanted to keep him there. And the people's response, it's understandable, isn't it? Uh, that, that they don't want him to go. And Jesus' response is so beneficial because he says, I must go so others will hear the good news of the kingdom of God. And it's important that we understand when Jesus proclaims his purpose. Because it's not just to exercise demons and it's not just to heal the sick and it's not just to teach. Although he does these things and he does so many more of them. That his purpose is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And the good news is that he has come to take away the sins of the world because he is the son of God. That's it. That's what we, that's what we celebrate today. When we, when we lift high the name of Jesus, that's what we celebrate. We don't celebrate these lesser things that he does. We celebrate that he lives the perfect life and he dies the death we deserve. And he lives, he's, he's, he's given life again so that we can be free. And the people, they don't get this because they're willing to settle for the immediate and not the eternal. Okay? And they don't get this, and I would dare to say that there's a chance that we don't get this. Because we want the immediate and we, we, don't, want, we don't really pay attention to the eternal. And, and so what I find interesting, and this is the transition, uh, what I find interesting is, is how these demons seem to understand why Jesus is there. And then, even though they're opposed to him, uh, and, and, and then how the church people don't seem to understand why Jesus is there. In fact, uh, this takes me to some ponderings or some questions I've been asking, and it's fun, we can, we can start wrapping this up. Uh, but but let, let's talk about those demons' responses, okay? In fact, let's just go verse 34 very quickly. Pay attention to what the demons say when they interact with Jesus. That The first one says, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then verse 41, And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. And what's striking is that the demons recognize Jesus and seem to know more about Jesus than many of the people in the synagogue, if, if not at all. If not all of them. 
that between the people and the demons, the demons are more vocal about the truth of who Jesus is. That, that the evil spirits, they get it right, and they identify Jesus as the chosen Savior of the world. And so, so it's left me with basically three questions that I've been trying to work through my own heart this week, and I figured if it's been bothering me, it hopefully it will bother you too. Right? And so, so, so it's left me with these questions. That number one, what does it say if demons that cannot be saved acknowledge more about Jesus than those he came to save? What, what does it say? That the demons have sense enough to ask him, have you come to destroy us? Because the demons know they would. In fact, there's, there's another, uh, one of the other Gospels, there's this scene where, like, the demon is frantic. It's not time yet. It's not time. You can't destroy us now. The time has not yet come. And so, so the demons know uh, that he will destroy them. Qu- their only concern is when. Right? They, they, they did not assume that they had unlimited time to carry out their wickedness. That they knew their days were numbered just like the days of sinful man are numbered too. Right? So, so you will either end your rebellion by repenting of your sin, confessing it to God and asking for forgiveness through Jesus. Or okay, Jesus will end your rebellion by demonstrating his holiness and his judgment and condemnation. I don't, I don't make those rules. This is just what God has told us. So I think a great mistake in our day is, is sitting in our sin and failing to ask God, will you destroy me because of my sin? And apart from Jesus, the answer is yes. And in Jesus, the answer is no. So the wise man repents and, and, and turns to Jesus and escapes the wrath that, that we deserve and and i I guess i plead i plead with you before it's too late before you die in your sin and face the lord's judgment repent and believe it is the greatest gift we could ever receive it's the most important decision we can ever make do not allow an evil spirit to respond more honestly to jesus than you Then I think the second question that surfaces in my heart comes from the proclamation of the demons about Jesus. Verse 33, he cried out with a loud voice. Verse 41 can be translated as it says, crying to shouting. It makes me wonder, do we acknowledge Jesus as loudly as the demons do? Right? Or or, or are we in some measure ashamed to proclaim Jesus? His name, because the truth is, we must not allow demons to proclaim Christ more boldly than we do. Then I think the last question comes in in considering how the demons obey Jesus. And and my question is, is are we quicker and are we more joyful in our obedience to Jesus than the demons are? Now here's the thing, I'm not saying that they're joyful to obey. I'm not saying when Jesus says, uh, get out and go that they don't do so reluctantly and begrudgingly and grumpily, right? But they obey him because he exercises raw authority toward them. Now, toward us, he shows love. And that's where I wonder, is our obedience to Christ joyful? 
How much more should we who have been loved by God through Jesus show our love toward Him in quick, glad, and full obedience? So, so the issue is, is let us resolve not, not to allow demons to acknowledge and obey Jesus more loudly and more quickly than we acknowledge and obey uh, the Lord who loves us and gave His life for us. And I think, I think seeing Jesus accurately is the key. Swan said this a couple uh, Wednesday nights ago, and I loved this line. He was talking to the teens, and, um, and he said, you know, if I can know Jesus, I can know myself. Because, because when I see Jesus accurately, everything else about me starts to make sense. And so, so I think as we look here in these scenes and we see Jesus do so many things and we can be so quick to say he's a healer and he's a teacher and he's an exorcist that, that we come in and we have to say, okay, he is those things but not all of those things define him because he is our Savior. He is the Lamb of God. He is God's Son who was sent into our story not to condemn us but to save us. And I think if we can see Jesus like that, then our affections for him can grow and grow and grow. And the more you love something, the more you treasure that thing. And the more you treasure that thing, the more you want others to know about that thing. That's all I got. My desire this week is to love God. Bye. As we wrap up, let me make a couple of things available to you. If you need prayer this morning, we'll have some people over on this side. We long to pray with you. We don't believe life should be done by yourself. Uh, in fact, we think it's a really, it's a really foolish way to live life. We want to pray with you. Maybe you've never asked Jesus to be both your Lord and your Savior. We want to give you that opportunity. I want to plead with you to take that Take that serious. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the love that you've given me for these people. And I thank you for the love that you've given them for me. And I pray this morning that that you would let us not just depart from your spirit because the service ends, but that we would carry this pressing desire to see Jesus, see your son so much more clearly so that we can just respond more accurately to your love. Father, we do pray for just a a clear theology, a clear doctrine, that you've revealed in your word. We pray for our authority that you've given us that that at the name of Jesus demons have to flee. That at the name of Jesus healing can take place. And I pray you would mobilize a people willing to proclaim the goodness of the good news of the gospel. We love you. It's in Jesus' name.
Have a blessed week. You're dismissed.